So, how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data and massive compute power. But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need. Right. Search HPE GreenLake. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 75. My guest this week is Stephen Tegel, who's the recipient of a 2016 Asian American Writers Workshop Margins Fellowship, a 2016 to 2017 Creative Writing Fulbright to Greece, and a 2013 Soros Fellowship. He recently graduated from the UMass Amherst MFA program, where he received the Harvey Suedos Fiction Prize and the Deborah Slosberg Memorial Award in Fiction. He's been published in the Los Angeles Review of Books, New Delta Review, Spork, and The Rumpus. Um, I wanted to have Stephen on because recently I was so inspired when we had Patricia Park on and she talked about getting a Fulbright in order to research her novel, Ray Jane. So... As soon as I heard about Stephen through a friend of mine, I was like, yes, let's get Stephen on and talk about ways to get actual funding so you can go and research crazy topics for a book. So I know you'll be thrilled to hear everything Stephen has to say, and I just love talking with him. So here we go with Stephen Tegel. Hey, Stephen, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, sure thing. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Carolyn. So recently we had Patricia Park on and she was talking about during the process of uh, researching her novel, Ray Jane, um, that she went and got a Fulbright so she could go to Korea and research that whole culture as part of her novel. And I was like, it did not even occur to me that this was something you could do. So when uh, my friend Jenny Brown, I was on her show, she said, I got to talk to Stephen. He went and got a Fulbright and he's off in Greece working on mythology I was like yes (laughs) let's talk about this because this is like things that people don't even realize they can do it just all we ever talk about is how expensive it is to be a writer or how hard it is to make it work and how could you ever go and research something in another country or travel as a part of writing but you are living the dream as evidenced by your gorgeous Instagram feed which everybody (laughs) should look at and we'll link to um so if you wouldn't mind, would you share the process of like coming up with the project idea and how you put that together and how that all happened? Yeah, sure. Small question. I mean, I think you're you're exactly right in what you said. I think um, lots of writers don't consider a Fulbright a possibility for them. And I think even before I started looking into it, when I graduated from college, um, you know, 10 years ago now, it, it wasn't even something that was really on my radar of something that I could apply to a creative field. I think there's this tendency to think of them as funding like hard science research or other things like that. But really, there, there are a whole bunch of different creative projects that you can do um, on a Fulbright. And there are Fulbright grants for, for film and for creative writing. And the more I researched it, I was able to find a couple blogs where writers had applied to Fulbrights and um, were giving advice specifically to other fiction writers or creative writers who were interested in applying. Um, So that really helped me build my confidence uh, and say like, oh yes, I can do this. Because I think also um, 
you know, when I graduated from my MFA at um, the University of Massachusetts um, in 2016, I was also at the same time applying to a lot of other fellowships. And most of them are only maybe um, a couple months. Residencies usually are a month or two months. Um, but this actually, the Fulbright lets you work and write abroad for nine months to a year. So you have this whole time, you're in a different country, you can really immerse yourself in another culture or um, spend a lot of time focusing on like how people make tea or blow glass or anything that is can be really particular to your fictional project or your your research for writing. So I, I had known that it was kind of this... Um, the Fulbright was this opportunity that I'd kind of overlooked um, coming out of college. So as I was preparing to leave the MFA um, at the end of my third year, it was definitely something that was on my mind. And I would say as I entered the second semester of my second year, I already, um, by that point, I was starting to pick a country and uh, I was making a ton of different spreadsheets. I knew I wanted to do a Fulbright, but I wasn't exactly sure like what um, country I want to apply for when I first started thinking about it. So, of course, like um, the big nerd that I am, I made uh, a spreadsheet that had possible countries. And by researching on the Fulbright site, they tell you there's specific requirements for each country, like what they're looking for, what kind of projects they're interested in supporting. Also statistics about um, the number of applicants from previous years and how many spots there are. So you can kind of see the relative acceptance rates and each country has a different rate um, that, with which they accept applicants. Um, so I Amazing. wanted to find, yeah, I wanted to find a balance of a place that I was really interested in and that would help my research and a place that um, wasn't like super, super competitive, like, um, you know, some places like the UK, for example, or places that have foreign languages that are commonly taught, like France or, or Spain, those ones have a lot of applicants. So the three countries that I was originally interested in applying to were uh, Greece, uh, South Korea, and Germany. Um, and at that point, I hadn't studied any of those languages before. <laughs> um, <laughs> I studied Spanish in high school, but uh, never used it. So I quickly forgot it um, and maybe use couple of Spanish words and like a few stories, but that's pretty much it. Um, but I was also really excited about the opportunity to learn a language and to be able to use that language on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I was, for each of these countries, I was thinking about doing a, a project that involved the mythology or the folklore of the country that I was visiting. Uh, for Germany, I was really interested in uh, a fairy tale. And, um, you know, I was really interested in um, the, f the new film coming out of South Korea and uh, Asi Asian mythology. But I think Greece came to the top uh, pretty quickly. I realized that I'd been using Greek mythology in lots of the short films that I'd made in college and uh, in the novel that I'd been working on. And then more explicitly, like during the MFA, um, I had drafted a couple of stories uh, for my thesis collection that had mythological characters or ties and kind of tried to refresh them and kind of combine mythology with um, autofiction or like uh, memoir. And I, I'm also, as a writer, really drawn to the fantastic or surreal. I, um, I don't really believe that there's a kind of solid divide between realism and these 
other kind of more fantastic uh, elements or supernatural elements. So mythology for me is great because in those tales, you know, you could have a god um, coming down in a, a shower of rain or people turn into animals or metamorphose. And all that is kind of taken um, as normal by the human characters in those stories. Right. Um, They're not freaked out. It's just, yeah, this is what's happening today. Yeah, exactly. So it has this ethos that um, I really, I really like uh, and that fits with my style. Uh, A lot of, a lot of my prep work was, um, first of all, like starting to study the language as soon as I decided that I wanted to apply for Greece. How is that? Because I've been to Greece and I, I like to know how to say like a few basic things in every place I've gone, but they, that is a tough one. Like their thank you is terrifying. <laughs> it is. Afarso is thank you. And it's like, it's a lot of, um, your mouth makes a lot of different shapes as that word comes out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely a challenge. And I think there's, you know, every time... I have a conversation with Greek people. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, Greek is a very difficult language to learn. Um, but it was it was really fun for me because I knew that um, the more I learned before I, as I was making my application, the stronger I would be. And then um, once I got accepted, like, it just opened up so many doors to be able to speak at least some basic things um, in the language. And I felt like I really improved um, over this past year in Greece. I think the alphabet was one of the most difficult things at first because there are a lot of letters that some letters have um, look the same as uh, Latin characters and also have the same sounds, but then some of them look the same but have different sounds. And then there are a couple other ones that aren't um, aren't Latin characters. Um, so it, and they also look different, capitalized versus um, lowercase. So there was a lot of confusion for me at first trying to figure out you know, what letter is this? What sound does it make? But once you get a grasp of them, um, they retain their sound whenever whenever they're in a word. So unlike parts of English where different letters can have different sounds at different times, um, when you see a certain letter in a Greek word, it's always the same. You can always make the same sound. Well, that's um, reassuring. Yeah, but some Greek words are like very, very long. And yes. Have like very, like syllable so it's hard a little bit hard to move through them kind of like like thank you (laughs) (laughs) no I was like I'm sorry could you say that again I don't even know how I could replicate that it's amazing (laughs) so I I commend you on that language so so you had I'm fascinated about the process that you would just learn the language of whatever country you go to so that's very cool that that's part of it that you can't just be like an English-speaking person show up and write about the culture from a very removed place but you really have to get inside of the culture you're going to yeah I think it was part of an investment on my part because I I felt like learning the language just helps help me get even deeper into um, the culture and, and feel less like a tourist I think and each country also has a different set language requirement. Um, like Japan, for example, I think you need to have at least two years of Japanese under your belt and you have to um, write your personal statement, I think, in Japanese. But Greece was, because Greek is um, like a less commonly taught language, I think, um, and most people in Greece, um, especially younger people, speak English. Um, they're, they're taught English from pretty young. The language requirement wasn't uh, very, very strict. I think you, they recommended having 
uh, maybe like a year, but it wasn't required. And so even though the language requirement was kind of daunting for me, because it, it, it's not exactly clear, like the level of language that other applicants would have, you know, um, I just tried to do, do as much as I could. And I was, uh, I took the classes, um, my last three, um, semesters at UMass. And then I did Skype sessions with, um, a Greek student living in Athens and, um, also just tried to do different online courses and apps and things like that. So it was kind of a hodgepodge, but it, it helped me get a good foundation for when I, um, when I made my trip. So how long was the preparation process? So you were thinking about this three semesters before you went. Yeah, exactly. So what's so, the, the kind of time commitment that, let's say somebody's like, I'm dying to go to this certain place because I'm working on this book. How, how long might they be working on this before they would be able to go? I think I tend to spend much longer doing things than other people, <laughs> than most people. Um, but I'm pretty thorough. So it took me about a year because I started the second semester of my second year and I, the application was due like October of the first semester of my third year. Okay. So I spent the second semester, the summer, and then like the first couple months of um, my, my last year or first semester doing it. Uh, so I would say it was about a year-long process for me. Uh, maybe nine months to a year, which is about the same as the grant period. And a couple other people I've talked to have said that they've also spent about an amount of time commensurate with the grant period. There are people who do it in less as well. You can, you know, three months, six months, something like that. Especially if you've been to the you've been to the country before. For me, this was all completely new. I'd never. I went to go visit Greece for the first time for two weeks in the summer between my my second and third years in the MFA program just to um, see if I'd actually like living in Athens or in Thessaloniki to meet my potential, um, uh, my potential like host affiliation and uh, to, to actually see like what the language situation was like and try to improve. Um, so that was, but that was my first time in Greece. I'd never, I'd never been to the country, but I'd never traveled to the country like on vacation. I'd never, I had kind of, this vague idea of Greece from movies like My Big Fat Greek Wedding and some other <laughs> things, but I didn't know that much about contemporary. <laughs> I didn't know that much you about You felt like you had to pack Greece some Windex, and... like the, the grandfather or whatever, yeah, who's always spraying anything Windex. Exactly. Uh, and like, I was prepared to eat like just meat, which is, which is perfect for me because I'm a total carnivore. <laughs> they have the most delicious um, feta cheese there too. Their feta cheese is like on a different level. All their food is, I think it's so fresh, like... A uh, common example is the tomato. Like you can't find tomatoes in the states, like tomatoes from Greece or other parts of the Mediterranean. It's just I really don't usually like eating vegetables, but in Greece I started eating like salads, and I would go shop at the the um, weekly farmers markets and things like that. It was everything was so delicious. Amazing. So, how was your writing process when you got there? Like, what was your routine like? And Tell us a little bit about the project you worked on, too, for everybody listening, so they know what you were exploring with the mythology. The project that I proposed for my Fulbright was to rewrite Greek myths um, as a way to talk about current political and social uh, issues happening in Greece, like the refugee crisis and the economic crisis. 
which have been affecting the people in Greece for the past like two or three years um, at least. And so because it seemed like myths were often used in ancient times as a way of dealing with chaotic situations, of dealing with the unknown, I thought that it might be interesting to try to apply Greek myths uh, in order to face some of these modern unknown um, things like how you know, what are the solutions to the economic crisis? What What's going to happen to all these refugees? And to try to um, connect mythology with personal narratives, especially um, the narratives of young Greek people and um, LGBT um, Greeks and refugees. So that was my project. And it's so cool. Uh, my research, thank you. Uh, and my, so my research for the project was I proposed conducting interviews with uh, Greek, young Greek people and with refugees, um, connecting with LGBT communities, also spending a lot of time traveling throughout Greece uh, to visit different archaeological sites, um, rivers and mountains featured in mythology. And one thing that's incredible about the Fulbright, especially um, the Fulbright Foundation in Greece, is that in general, they're really open to letting you shape your project and to have your project they know that your project will necessarily change once you arrive in the country and actually get a sense of um, what you're working with, how easy it is to access different resources. And they're fine with you changing your project um, kind of organically to follow, you know, to make the best use of your time. So one thing that was great for me is that I, you know, many, um, many full writers just stay in one, one city or one part of the country uh, and do their work there. But I was really fortunate because because of the nature of my project, um, I was able to travel a great deal within the country. And I think that gave me uh, an incredible sense, um, not just of the diversity and the different stories of each part of Greece, but to see how all these pieces came together to form like Greek national identity. And I got to kind of, I met people and made friends um, with Greeks, you know, from Crete to the Peloponnese to like Athens and central Greece and uh, to northern Greece as well. I was living in Athens uh, in the fall and traveling during the summer and during around Christmas time. Then I was teaching for the spring semester in Thessaloniki, which is the second largest city, uh, which is in northern Greece. So while I was there, I was also doing weekend trips to like Halkidiki and different parts of um, Macedonia. And then um, during the summer before I left, I did a lot of travel to uh, the Peloponnese, but also the islands bordering uh, Turkey. And I spent two weeks driving through Crete uh, and climbed Mount Olympus. Um, so I, I was able to have all these experiences because the Fulbright Foundation was really trusting that I, uh, and supportive that I would know how best to organize my time. And um, because seeing these archaeological sites and mythological sites was such a priority for me. So I, I, I was really, really happy and fortunate to be able to do that. And so, uh, sorry, what was your question? Oh my God, there were like five of them. I have more now too. It's just like, I I keep having more. The one thing I would have is that, like you said, the project could change as a result of it. So do you have like five novels you want to write now? Because I could think of so many things that might happen as a result of seeing these places and you have all this awareness of the setting and what it's like and 
what's going on in this place, it just seems like that would spurn multiple storylines that you could explore. Yeah, and I think that's definitely what happened. Um, I felt like when I first arrived in Greece, you know, living in the country, I felt like I didn't really have the right yet to be able to write about it because I knew once I got there, I realized how little I knew about the country and the people and what they were actually going through. So I think the research phase of my project, which was originally proposed to be like the first maybe three to six months, um, I spent most of my time just living in Greece and really trying to be receptive and open to everything that came my way. Um, so when I returned from Greece uh, at the end of the September, I came back with, you know, I, I, kept a, I kept a journal every day that listed, um, you know, like what I was doing from hour to hour, but also things I'd observed, people, conversations I had with different people, just kind of weird ephemera. Um, kind of uh, things that I saw or scrawled on walls or um, that I, I heard from conversations. I took like over a terabyte of photos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, like, I filled up my entire computer and then like a, a external hard drive as well. I took sound recordings of um, kind of the, the oral atmosphere of different places that I'd visited. Um, I did kind of hours-long interviews with different refugees and, and Greek people. Um, and so I, had all, I have all these materials, and I feel like this, the year that I spent in Greece um, is really going to be the raw material, not just for this project to rewrite Greek myths, but, but for a host of different different projects. Like I'm, I have a couple ideas for essays now that I'm um, starting to work on. And it just feels like this, this raw material will become so many different, uh, different things. My, so my schedule, I was in Greece, it was, it was constantly changing. Um, because, you know, when I was living in Athens, I was um, volunteering for this nonprofit Solidarity Now and working with refugees. When I was in Northern Greece, I was I was teaching and doing different workshops and giving um, and doing office hours and being involved in the university. Um, when I was traveling, I would you know wake up at uh, seven a.m. to make the opening of an archaeological site and try to see maybe five or six sites um, each day, and then kind of go to bed, have a good meal, and go to bed exhausted and do it all over again. You know, there were moments where I did feel like Indiana Jones and I was kind of jumping over <laughs> fences and having. But I, but I really felt like I really lived during my Fulbright year with, and kind of lived in the, the exciting, like, Instagram, just collecting all these stories and all this material that's kind of stewing in my head now is coming out now in fiction now that I have, I'm kind of back on this regular writer's schedule, waking up, going to cafe or, or working for a couple hours, like downing cups of tea. Uh, it's more, more sedentary, but I felt like I feel like it's what I have wanted, and I'm excited to process all this information and data uh, now that I'm back. Yeah, it seems like you would need to have both because it's like when you're there, I can imagine, or I wonder if there was this sense of pressure, like I've got to be doing something valuable with every minute at this time, and figuring out what the most valuable thing would be and feeling simultaneously like, oh, I've got to write this thing, but I've also got to get the material. Like, how did you deal with that pressure? Yeah, I definitely did feel that that pressure and that guilt. It did feel like the time was 
increasingly scarce uh, as as the grant went on. Uh, I think lots of us had kind of grand ideas for um, the amount of work we'd accomplish and output um, while we were abroad. But it does take some time getting used to living in a new country, and you also you also want to be a part of that culture and experience it as, and make the most of your experience while you're there. So for me, there was this, um, this kind of tension between um, working and writing and, and, and being a sponge, kind of trying to uh, just uh, going out into the world and absorbing as much as possible to then bring back uh, home to kind of form and work with. So I did write, I, I wrote an essay and a couple um, short pieces while I was abroad um, but I think t- towards the end of my trip, as I felt that time was more constrained, um, I definitely did privilege this kind of re- reception and absorption of, um, of the country. And then just tried to, you know, I was taking notes and keeping a journal every day and just sort of those getting down the, um, the, the thoughts, the observations was kind of the work that I did in preparation for coming back. Um, so I just, at some point, I just felt like I had made that decision and I um, then just kind of uh, followed through with that. What is the expectation that, that the Fulbright has in terms of what you're going to come up with at the end of this? Like, are they expecting you to sort of present them with a manuscript? Like, what is the sort of exchange because I can imagine also feeling like oh god I've got to come up with this thing what are they asking you for yeah I mean actually once you once you get the grant there's no um required final output so they're kind of investing in you as an individual um as an artist or as a writer and I think they're very aware that um for many writers you know you you input all these experiences and it can be a long time before you actually find the right way of expressing them or the right form. So there can there's this kind of acknowledged gap between the reception and the final product. So really, they're they're putting um, they're investing in you, knowing that you know it might be years until an, a physical project comes out. And I think that's also why they're open to. Um, these kind of this organic change within the proposed projects. Um, for example, I had a friend who proposed writing a screenplay um, when she went to Russia on a Fulbright, and then was actually writing a novel while she was there. Like she decided to change the genre. But those things, um, yeah, I think are all part of their expectations. So there's not. It was really nice to feel that I, I wasn't forced to like have something to like a book to give to them at the end of the nine months. Um, there are like two progress reports, but really that's more to see, to make sure that, you know, you're um, maximizing your experience. And if you need any help to make adjustments, then the organization can help you with that. That's amazing. And it's, I, it seems like it's to their advantage too, because like, how could you not have other things? Plus I'm surprised there aren't a whole bunch of like, here's what I did with my Fulbright kind of memoirs. <laughs> Because uh-huh. <laughs> the thought of like, because people love those kind of things, like, oh, I just up and uprooted my whole life and I went and I moved into this new country and this is who I figured out who I was as a result of this. I mean, that seems, I kind of want to read that. Yeah, I mean, 
there are at least two essays that I'm working on right now that um, are kind of about that because I, I feel like when I was in Greece, I was able to um, kind of explore different parts of myself that that kind of either have been out of habit or out of out of just kind of being the same type of person here in the states, like not having an opportunity to to really change, um, has have kind of solidified as my uh, my personality, I guess. So yeah, it did allow. I I think one one of the things I told myself really early on was that. I would try to say yes to as many things as possible, um, as many new experiences, and try to try to kind of get past um, lots of the things that I kind of learned or taught myself to be anxious over or like afraid of um, growing up in the states. So that kind of openness uh, kind of paved the way for lots of different adventures and meeting people and. Um, yeah, living in a different way than I have lived um, in the States. So what's something you said yes to that you never would have thought you might have based on who you were before you left? Well, one, so one, one small example is that, um, and I used to, I never thought that I'd be the kind of person to hitchhike. It, it always seemed like scary to like get into someone else's like vehicle and kind of really put yourself in their hands. Um, but when I, the first few months of my, the Fulbright, um, I was traveling in the Ionian islands, which are, um, the islands on the West side of Greece. And I remember trying to figure out this really complicated bus schedule to get from one part of Corfu to another. And I saw this other guy just kind of, uh, stick his thumb out and then almost immediately uh, a kind of Greek family pulled up in their car and he um, you know maybe spoke two words of Greek said like Kalimera um, and he said in English can I have a ride to this place um, and you know Greeks are so hospitable it's like built into the DNA of their culture and so they said yes of course and he hopped in and I was like oh is it wow it's that easy like if he could do it maybe maybe I could do it too um, so I remember when I was I was in Ithaca and I um, it was kind of late at night and I was had walked into town to get um, groceries because I just arrived and I was walking along the road um, in the dark with these like really heavy grocery bags <laughs> uh, and then this guy stopped um, on his motorcycle uh, like and indicated that I should just get on and I was like. Well, okay, I guess I'll I guess I'll try this. Um, so I'd never I'd never ridden on a motorcycle before. <laughs> I'd never uh, hitchhiked before. Um, but that that sense of trust, I think, um, and building that trust in other people and that um, that reliance on other people is something that I've learned because I think you know in the states there's this myth like we try to be as um, self sufficient as possible. We don't like to impose too much on others or rely too much on others but in in Greece I think there's this real culture of um, you know strangers helping each other um, you know if you go into a cafe and you ask um, you know how to get to a certain archaeological site or something there'll be people who are just who you know you aren't even talking to 
this these old men and they'll like turn around in their seats and be like oh you know you sh- you know this this is how you get there this is what it was how it's been the past couple years and then you know so there's this kind of uh kind of communal sense of people taking care of each other um so i think that also that culture made me feel more comfortable um kind of testing the limits of the boundary between myself and and other people that's amazing it's it is amazing when when you have a situation like that where somebody just completely changes your expectation of what's possible. It's it's so exciting. I mean, I could see a whole short story around that. It, it just sort of I see the yeah. men the men in the cafe and like I don't know. It's just that's so. I am always fascinated by stories about an outsider witnessing a culture and it changing how they see what's possible. And I think there's something about a Fulbright that just sort of breeds that kind of narrative. Because of course you're an outsider. That's the point. That's why you want to go to the place is to learn more about it. Yeah. And I think as I was applying to Greece too, I also just built this um, real love, like almost an obsession with the culture and its people. So um and I think that came through when I was meeting people, like when, you know, uh, Greek people would be so, so surprised when I started to speak with them in Greek because, you know, I'm an Asian American guy from California and they're like, uh, you know, what, how do, how do you know Greek? Why are you speaking in this language? Like, are your, um, do you have Greek, you know, Greek family members? Are you, are you half Greek? Um, and then I think, my this my enthusiasm for the culture and for the the country, um, especially as I got to see more of the country and visited different places, um, just really came through. And so, everyone I met there like really welcomed me with open arms. Um, I remember like I would go to uh, different bakeries, and when when they heard that I sp- spoke in Greek. Um, these women would give me like little bags of cookies and little treats and they would, you know, they would just put their arms around me. And so just kind of that embrace of the entire culture. Um, I, I went by Stephanos, which is like Stephen in Greek when I was there. Oh, so great. And, <laughs> and I, I found like I would, I would speak loud, louder. I, um, you know, I would eat vegetables. I inadvertently became a healthier person because I would be eating all this like delicious Mediterranean food, and then and then hiking up to these remote temples or um, or different ruins. So I'd I'd be spending my days like outdoors climbing and <laughs> different things. So yeah, in some ways, like that, um, it allowed me to become a very different person and try on these parts of myself that I, you know, uh, in the states I'd be like there's no way I'm climbing that mountain or <laughs> things like that. But um, it, it allowed me to test the boundaries of um, what I conceived of as, as myself. That's so cool. Plus, I mean, there's no better motivation for learning a language than if people just start giving you cookies because you speak it. Oh my God, it's the best motivation ever. <laughs> like, I know Greek seems really scary, but if you learn it, they will give you cookies. Yeah. And I mean, actually, when I... Um, you know, there have been a couple people here in Astoria who uh, have done the same thing. I think it's not just in Greece, but like the Greek community here too is just as just as welcoming. <laughs> so yeah, so speaking of it, it'll pay off no matter where you are. Yeah. So if somebody <laughs> listening to this, like say me, 
is suddenly fired up and is like, I think this is a great idea for me to do with this novel. What would you recommend they do first? Like, um, in particular, this is a selfish question, but I'm the one interviewing, so I feel like I can ask it. Um, I'm working on a novel right now set in Germany. So what made you not pick Germany? And which countries do you think are kind of on the more accepting style versus it's harder to get into, it sounds like Spanish-speaking countries or French-speaking because so many people learn those languages in school. Um, so I guess question number yeah. one is, why did you ditch Germany? Because I kind of want to go to Germany. And <laughs> two would be, what are places that people could look into that you think might be good options? I think there wasn't anything negative about Germany. Um, really, it was that I that I saw as I was applying um, just how involved my writing had been with Greek mythology um, throughout the, the past couple of years. Yeah, so I think even as I kind of proposed those two other um, options, from the beginning, I was kind of leaning, uh, leaning towards Greece. But they, I think Germany offers a lot of uh, Fulbright fellowships, and yes. they have they accept a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of applicants. So their rate is um, their acceptance rate is really is really good. Okay, great. I was worried you're going to be like they only accept yeah. two people, and there were like four thousand applicants. So I just seemed like uh, maybe not. Okay, so that's awesome. No, I think. Greece accepts about six to eight, I think, um, of the, this is, the arts grants fall under the category of research study. So there are two general categories, the ETA, which is teaching English uh, in a foreign country, and then there's the um, the research study grants, which include the arts grants. Sometimes that can be kind of confusing if you're trying to find uh, which, which grant you should apply to for creative writing. Um, but I think Germany accepts like 20 or 30. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it really depends on the country. So I'd, I'd say the first thing to do would be to go on the Fulbright website. We'll link to it in the show notes for everybody's reference. Perfect. And this is the um, Fulbright U.S. student program. And there's a, there's a web page for each country that they offer grants for. And this is super important because it it tells you what sort of candidate they're looking for. So for Greece, they said, um, you know, we're especially interested in projects um, about the arts, the humanities, architecture, archaeology, architecture, um, you know, some, there are some sciences listed and then also, um, you know, contemporary Hellenic studies. So I was trying to devise a project that would hit a couple of those um, points that they were interested in. Um, so the art, um, of course, and then also this connection with contemporary Greece. And then they, sometimes they can also, they also tell you like if they're offering specific grants, like, um, when I applied, they were also offering kind of a joint grant between, um, Turkey and Greece. You spent half your time in Greece and half your time in Turkey. And there was another one with, um, Bulgaria and Greece. So oftentimes there's special opportunities that you only know by going to that specific page. And then really, I kind of see my entire application process as trying to build a bridge from where I was in Massachusetts to Greece. So I spent a lot of time um, trying to find uh, Greek contacts and make friends, both in the States and then kind of slowly from friends of friends or um, colleagues recommended by professors or different people, um, slowly try to make connections with people um, in the arts or um, 
in universities in Greece. And um, that's important because you need to have um, a host institution that's willing to support you. And I think that's what really took the longest time um, for the application process. So it's, it's finding someone who will say like, yes, we're, I'm willing to serve as sort of a mentor or a, um, a host for this writer. Um, I can provide these things and either me or my, this or my organization is relevant to his or her project because of these reasons. So I tried a couple different um, methods of finding my host affiliation. And I was looking in Athens and also Thessaloniki and different parts of Greece. I connected with um, a professor at the University of Thessaloniki, and that's really the best was um, the best connection because I could teach creative writing to Greek students. So I had this opportunity to be in a classroom setting um, with young Greek people, and um, I could share my love of writing and be in an intellectual environment. And there was a connection with writers that I met as I was kind of searching for an affiliation here in the States. So it all worked out really well, but it took time to make those um, connections and introductions and kind of reach out. Um, so yeah, I think that was probably the most time consuming part. And then I, you know, I was concerned about learning the language. So I was trying to do that as much as possible. There's also um, two essays. One is a two page uh, statement of grant purpose in which you explain um, your project idea, your qualifications, and then outline what you'll do throughout the grant and then what you'll do when you return to the States. So um, there's also a personal statement, which is kind of talking about your personal investment in this project and, and what was your journey to, to addressing this project in this country at this time. And then you have like the transcripts and uh, the application itself and uh, those those sorts of things. I think you need three letters of recommendation and then your either undergrad your undergrad transcript and then if you're in grad school, grad school transcripts, um, those sorts of things. Well, I hope that we end up with lots and lots of novels written because of this conversation because people say, screw it, I'm going to another country and I'm going to go and figure out this story. And then I can't wait to see what your project turns into as you finally have a little bit of time to write it now. Thank you so much. I mean, yeah, I'm so excited to spread the word about Fulbrights because I feel like it's an incredible opportunity for writers. And I think still not very many writers know about it. So I'm happy to get the word out. And this, this past year in Greece was absolutely life-changing. Um, and I'm still figuring out now, like all the ways that it's changed me and, um, and I think that's what the writing will help me with, help me figure out too. Well, definitely keep us posted on as these essays and things that you're writing um, come out so that we can share them with everybody so they get to read more. I will. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I really had a great time talking with you. Thank you so much. It was awesome. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, 
visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.